and hello. Welcome to the season four debut of the Heart Guide Media Podcast. This is our, we're rolling up on three years. This is, uh, I've broken them down over the last uh, year and a half or so into seasons. Um, The last season, season three, started in August of last year and ran up until just a few weeks ago when we did our last episode. But here we are, uh, July 5th, and uh, yeah, we got a brand new episode for you. Uh, this uh, may or may not be the the last season, quote unquote, um, of the Heartguide Media podcast. It's very hard to find uh, guests sometimes uh, to tack people down, even in quarantine. Um, luckily, I do have uh, a few friends that do give up their time. Uh, one of them is on this episode today, Mr. Lewis Smith. He's appeared on many, many, many episodes, and uh, and it's. Uh, like I said, it becomes uh, tedious sometimes trying to tack down. If I had a consummate co-host, it'd be different, but I'm constantly trying to have to, you know, coordinate with people and try to get them to carve out time and have me carve out my own time. Uh, like I said, luckily I've had a few friends and uh, and Lou uh, as well, who is a, an old friend, be able to uh, come on and, and dedicate a, a decent amount of his time uh to the podcast. I'm very appreciative for that. So if this is indeed the last season, uh, we shall make it good. We shall make it great. We shall make it grand. We shall make it wonderful. And we shall have fun. And today is no different. Today we are covering a topic that I thought for a while would be very hard to uh, do. And uh, I think it's proving that uh, as I was trying to compile a list for top 10 albums of the 80s. Uh, the 1980s, that is, and uh, it wasn't easy, and uh, the list may even change uh, midway through the show, but as uh, as I said, uh, my guest is Lewis Smith, and we're going to dive right in right now to our top 10 albums of the 1980s. like a few honorable mentions just because and obviously i'll explain why i listed them as honorable mentions but like i i had to so <laughs> like so I, I had to so i have honorable mentions too but i also uh i have ones that are like i guess aren't are honorable honorable mentions but i had to mention them just because they were so pivotal 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 to the the decade right so these so just as as, as a refresher these are these are albums for you that were like important, not to the decade, right? Or is it, did I fucking is this vice versa? No. So, I mean, I kind of did a little bit of both, but mainly it's albums, personal albums that you think okay. you know that that shape what you consider the '80s to be. Okay, because there's definitely going to be there's going to be a cons- like there's going to be a handful that do fall within that realm of these were important to the decade of music but coincidentally also impacted me and i'm i'm sure we'll have some cross-pollination with some of these too okay cool i'm good to go okay sweet here we are the uh top 10 
albums of the 80s with uh, Mr. Uh, Lewis Smith. Lou, before we uh, before we jump into the to the the grind of trying to get our list uh, bunkered down and and chiseled in the stone of uh, podcast nothingness. Um, give a give a little plug to your um, your reanimated uh, Capital City Smiths podcast. All right, so we uh, we are back from the dead, as it were. Uh, we took a little hiatus just for you know getting married and all of the other stuff that comes along with with transitioning and that life. Uh, we've since moved, but. We, uh, we recently have a new episode up. I was very exciting. Uh, my wife, Hannah, uh, co-host, she, uh, she shares a wonderful story in which she travels downtown. Uh, we actually went through a similar uh, distribution as, as you did with, uh, with uh, Hargot Media. So we are literally everywhere. Um, Stitcher, uh, Deezer, like literally some of the shit that I've never heard of before, we're there. So uh, Capital City Smiths, check it out. We're excited. Um, new format. It, it'll be a lot of fun. Obviously, Jesse, you're going to be brought in there when we can we can have you sit down. And uh, I have a couple stories I want you to rehash that I find absolutely fucking hysterical. So we will uh, we will talk about that at a later date. But uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much what's uh, what we're up to. And it's a very you know free form. You'll cover you know a lot of personal stories, but you, it's pretty much open for anything. You you can cover just about anything on it. You're you're segregated to no certain. Uh, realm of possibilities yeah these these aren't like traumatic experiences the, the way i look at it is um everyone has like weird experiences throughout their life and and i kind of wanted to just capture that a little bit right just just tell something tell a story or tell a couple stories um that that you know like the back of your hand that in some way impacted you they left a mark like literally if you can tell a story clearly it impacted you in some way shape or form so that's uh that's kind of that, that was my thought with that i shared with Anna. she was like totally on board with it so we're uh, we're gonna run with that see where it leads us and like you said it's free form fuck we might end up just talking about like someone sharing their experience of uh, i don't know a specific like, cassette tape that impacted them as a kid you right know, like whatever it, it's not just confined to to life stories like there could be some other substance to it so we're excited man yeah, I'm uh, I'm pumped you guys are back and it's going to be uh the first episode was already uh <laughs> probably one of the most entertaining pieces of audio I've listened to in quite some time. Uh if not alone just for the sound effects. <laughs> that was uh that was a painstaking like dude that was so fucking brack backbreaking to do that like to remember what you used for each time a word was said so it was good i'm definitely i'm gonna dial it back a little bit but i'm still gonna incorporate that in there because it keeps it there's got to be some thread of consistency i think and that will be the thread is you know incorporating interesting sound effects to accent the already interesting stories so i'm looking forward to it for sure so uh so the top 10 albums of the 80s, that's something I, I know you and I have talked about. Um, I mean, the decade in and of itself, we've talked about endlessly. Obviously, I mean, there's some people out there, and, and I'll see it once in a while, where people will try to disparage uh, the decade um, as kind of like too over the top at times, uh, be it for music or movies, but... 
in my opinion, I think it is the golden age of many genres of film, uh, action, horror, sci-fi. Um, and I think it's a, you know, it's a staple decade for music. I think it would be pretty safe to say that more than half of the music that has impacted me and that I am a huge fan of is from the, it was birthed in the eighties. Um, and albeit, you know, um, conceived in the seventies, but, you know, grew up and, you know, the, the, the product of the eighties is definitely, you know, the seventies. There's many bands that put out albums in the late seventies that didn't become bigger until the eighties. Many bands that started in the seventies didn't become bigger to the eighties. Uh, many filmmakers, you know, you know it, it's kind of hard to talk about the 80s and music and not talk about film as well, because, uh, you know, you're talking about the biggest boom in, in soundtracks. Soundtracks became like a big thing in the 80s, albeit either, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like some big sound. I feel like every 80s movie had like a big soundtrack, be it you know, uh, Lost Boys or The Breakfast Club or anything like that. I feel like it was just, uh, it was a, a time where music was, uh, I don't I don't know if I, I thought it just seemed more important in the 80s. No, I, I think you're, I think you're definitely right because it really captured like, and this is, this is a terrible way to describe it, but the, the bigness and the, and the importance of a soundtrack and and I also think on the same side, sc- film scores themselves just oh for sure, dude. Shit got kicked up like a, 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 like fifteen fucking notches um, when it came to, to a lot of that stuff in the eighties, specifically in your horror, your sci fi stuff. Um, talk about memorable. I mean, it's just it's great. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think I can think back on especially you know your eighties horror stuff and not think like wow. I could actually just kind of listen to this music whenever. And obviously it's birthed subgenres today, you know, some of these, these very interesting synth, you know, horror synth type shit. Like that's, that's floating around out there. It's, it's awesome. Um, just before we, we launch here, you bring up a good point. There's, I, I also have come across certain individuals that, that were kind of shit on the eighties. And I, I think what happens is people tend to, when they, when they think about a, a, a specific, um, they they think about a decade, and they tend to lump things in, or uh, one thing uh, completely spoke for that decade. You, with music, for example, I'll use that because that's kind of where I was going with this. People would be like, "Oh, fucking." 80s new wave i fucking hate that shit i any of the shit that was on the radio i don't want to listen to that it was it was lack of art it was a fad whatever but or or whatever hair metal fucking you could say any of that stuff and it kind of sucks because there was like you said like there was a lot of stuff even bands even in the 80s where they didn't really hit their stride until the mid to late 80s but they were still putting out stuff early in the 80s you mentioned the 70s like it was a huge time for music but not just the shit that people were hearing on the radio and and i think people tend to miss that um I, i i know we've briefly 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 touched on like even disco i have a soft spot for disco but not the shit that you're gonna fucking hear on the radio right there was a lot of underground shit that was being produced i use the term underground very loosely but 
dance club material that was being put out that was just wild. It was crazy. So that's kind of where I was going with that. Um, you got to dig a little deeper. It's 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 kind of unfair to paint it with such a broad brush, you know. No, it, it is, and and I think the '80s were kind of the beginning of all the subgenres of music because. You know, in the 60s and, and in the 70s, and, and mainly in the 70s is where you, all the genres really got carved out. You had rock, you had classical, you had metal, you had punk, you had disco, you had pop. But then when the 80s came, you know, instead of just having those set genres, instead of punk, you had punk and you had hardcore. Instead of just metal, you had uh, thrash, hair metal power metal and same thing with pop there wasn't just pop anymore there was electro pop there was brit pop there you know instead of uh you know just straight disco there was you know the advent of, of techno electronica you know it just it's where the subgenre came in and before you could even really know what you were listening to because you could say you were a metalhead and someone could consider you know well i'm a metalhead I like, you know, more glam bands that aren't necessarily, that were considered hair bands, but they were more glam bands that were inspired by Bowie in the 70s and the New York Dolls would, would say like Dokken and Twisted Sister, but they were written off as more hair bands. But then you had straight up hair bands that seemed like they were created by the record labels, but they were just kind of doing their own thing with like the hair and the fashion look and trying to look like girls with like the poisons and the the rats and the warrants. Now, me myself, I'm a fan. Like, I consider myself a fan of just music because I like so much. I like, you know, I'll listen to pop, the most mainstream shit you could find, and I'll listen to punk. You know, put it this way: I have, I have, uh, I have Crass albums. I have Madonna albums. I have uh, Warrant records. I have Rat records. And I also have Slayer as one of my favorite bands of all time. So there's no, you know, in the 80s was a perfect, you know, uh, personification of that, I guess. It, it, I don't know if that's the right uh, word to use, but there was just so much. And I, always, it always confused me when certain people would be like, well, I'm only, you know, I'm only a thrash metal guy or I'm only a punk guy. There was just so much out there that was quality in my eyes um that i could never limit myself to one part of the music and i uh one genre of music and i think a lot of that is based you know within this decade and where it all came you know i mean there's just i mean as you're gonna hear our lists i think you're we're both gonna you know come to the conclusion like wow there's so much different like stuff on here stuff that's you know, seminal to the to the decade, seminal to us. It's it's. I mean, we could just talk in in in, in circles all day about this, but it's a uh, it's an unprecedented decade. We'll just say that. Very much agreed. So, uh, did you want to go first? You want me to go first? I, I I figure we could touch all of our um. Some of our honorable mentions and then do our lists and then go back and try to like cover any ground of stuff that maybe isn't so much an honorable mention, but we couldn't leave the episode without saying. Sure, sure. Yeah, let's uh, let's kick off with uh, with the honorable mentions. I think that's a that's a good call. Um, 
So let's just, we'll go back and forth. So Perfect. I have three. Um, so if, if you want to trade off, you know, speak to it a little bit if you, if you want or whatever, we'll just roll through them. Um, so the first one, the first one for me, um, Oh, no, I have two. I'm sorry, I have two. Um, the first one for me was was definitely Hall & Oates, Private Eyes. Um, why that album was important to me and why I think it was important for the decade. Um, not only did you see, like, Hall & Oates, who, like, you know, birthed more or less out of doo-wop, at least Daryl Hall, but, you know, the incorporation of when they first really started playing out and, and incorporating a drum machine. Um, sonically, the album's fantastic. Um, these guys were just hit makers, right? Singles, singles, singles. And I think that this is a good, like, taste of what their discography, more or less, the bulk of their discography as far as shit that they still play today and incorporate into their set list. But it's just solid pop songwriting, and it's, it's fantastic. Not only does it incorporate, like, the use of saxophone in there, which, again, um, the, the name escapes, you know, the individual who plays sax for them, who still plays sax for them, but uh, it's just something, I, I can't escape it. <laughs> the album's fantastic. The artwork is fucking wonderful, dude. Um, but that is that is one of my honorable mentions, uh, 1981's Private Eyes by Hall and & Oates. And, uh, you know, getting those albums in the early 80s, you have the whole decade. Obviously, they released um, other albums in the 80s, but I, I, I would agree that that is the most uh, important release of the 80s for them. But, uh, again, another band that we said was, you know, born born and really kind of carved out their their tunnel in the music industry in the 70s but then had a whole resurgence and adopted some of the 80s pop sensibilities that would that would you know they would lay the groundwork for a lot of 80s pop sensibilities honestly um and have uh kind of three different parts of their career 70s 80s and then after uh but the 80s there's no denying that the 80s was the biggest time for hall and oats and and uh i mean that that was uh you know i i did i i didn't write it down necessarily as a as a strict honorable mention but it was definitely on a list of stuff that i was going to that i'm uh gonna mention at the end of uh the episode when we're just kind of uh cover up the i don't want to say scraps because that's how packed uh that's how packed the '80s are. Where where Hall and Oates is falling into the fucking into like the honorable mention and and the the scraps department when they're like probably some of the biggest like pop songwriters of the '80s. That's how like all incorporating the the '80s is for us. But yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, just um, he, uh, we've talked about Hall and Oates like endlessly. I think uh, especially uh, Daryl Hall's uh, voice is probably one of the best voices in all of music ever, in my opinion. And, and the best part is, especially with whether it's shit off this album, really anything, and including his voice, it still holds up. Oh, for sure. Uh, being able to being being able to see them both together, I think at this point, eight nine years ago, um, out in Buffalo at Lewis Art Park, um, they're great. They're fucking solid as fuck, man. Uh, <laughs> they yeah, still they got it. they it's don't awesome. lose it. Um, so one of my. Uh, strict honorable mentions um that i i absolutely could not go without saying because i think she was the female artist of the 80s aside from one other individual uh i'm going with uh pat benatar's uh crimes of passion hell yeah um just you know she laid the groundwork for what it meant to be a woman in the music industry 
Um, you know, there's so many stories of her trying, you know, record executives and things like that, trying to take advantage of her. And I think she, she instilled like a, like a, the woman's, uh, lib and woman's power movement before there was even, you know, those terms were even thought of, uh, and she stood her ground. She always has. And, you know, just some of the, I mean, the, just, just the, the biggest hit single of the whole album, you know, hit me with your best shot and the whole Pat Benatar look, you know, it was a whole thing in, in fast times at Richmond high where they even mentioned it, that everyone in the school started dressing like Pat Benatar. And, you know, that, that speaks to the influence. And I love all of her albums, uh, especially all of them of the eighties. Uh, it's, it's really hard not to mention, uh, just one and not talk about the others, but crimes of passion for me, uh, is definitely something I had to mention for sure. Nice. So my, my second, uh, honorable mention. And the reason I included this one is I was trying to make room for it on my top 10, but I knew it was immediately going to fall into an honorable mention realm. Um, so this, this band and specifically this album, it's been in rotation pretty consistently for the last few years. I, I hadn't really, you know, stumbled across these guys until that point. But as soon as I did, it was just there was no looking back. And I've I haven't been obsessed with them, but I have I've been listening to them a lot. Um, this is 1981's uh, "Welcome to Hell" by uh, by Venom, and it's important to me because. Uh, and, it, and I think it's important to the, the decade itself, not only the impact it had on metal, black metal, thrash, even punk, but the album itself encompasses so many different genres. So when I heard it, it literally it took the speed that I enjoy from elements of thrash, elements of punk. It took the imagery that I find fucking fantastic from black metal, um, and it just combined everything all together, not to mention being a fucking three-piece, which I found even more fascinating. So the more that I, I delved into their catalog, I can I can speak safely to their first four records. Um, anything beyond that, it gets a little squirrely, but but I think, um, I think those first four are, are fucking fantastic. Even Possessed, I know people are a little weird about that, but I will always say in Black Metal, just fucking awesome. And... Um, welcome to hell is just, I, I don't know. For me, there's just something about it. Um, it kicks off and it doesn't fucking let up the entire time. So that's one of the ones I at least wanted to mention because it, it was important to me, not only because it impacted me at a different stage of my life, um, where a lot of this other music is more or less been sediments essentially since I was younger or, you know, high school, etc. This is one that came out a little, a little later on, but it, it just, it speaks to me for whatever reason. So I had to mention that, uh, as one of my honorable mentions. Yeah. I mean, Venom's, uh, another one of those bands that have influenced so many, uh, metal artists of all, uh, genres. It's, it's kind of hard not to. Not to, I mean, Welcome to Hell especially is just, uh, I feel like that is one of uh, the uh, landmark albums of uh, of the genre for sure. I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, it's so, it's so, for people that don't understand, listen to the album and then just listen to metal artists talk about it and you, then you'll understand. Uh, so, 
I guess my second one, and and I do have uh, I do have a big disclaimer to let before we jump into our list too. Uh, before I mention my uh, second honorable mention, um, I have a huge, uh, huge disclaimer to 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 forego on my list, so nothing gets skewed, and I and I don't want people to think that I I'm not a fan of certain bands when they're in fact some of my favorite bands. I just wanted to have a disclaimer, so we'll get to that one, but right before we start our list, but one of the best selling albums of the entire '80s. I think it was only second to two or three different albums. I think it's number three all-time selling albums of the 80s, and I think it's, like, number five or something overall of albums sold ever. Uh, I may be a little wrong on the numbers. Uh, I can fact-check at some point, but ACDC's back in black. Dude, huge. Uh, Huge. I mean, you're talking about losing Bon Scott, bringing in Brian Johnson, and then having your biggest album ever and bringing the the band to uh, stadium levels, uh, I mean it's just I mean every song is uh, a hit too. I mean it's just, and I, I grew up with it. You know we grew up with ninety five X. You know that shit was just ingrained in us at a at a very young age. Um, and whenever I thought about the eighties, you know a, a, another album. You know you're talking nineteen eighty, eighty one. I can't remember if it was 80 or 81. I think it was 80. Um, and it was just... Actually, it was 81. Uh, but just a huge record for for a million different reasons. And I... I, I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not include it in there just for historical reasons. Uh, but no, it was released in 1980. Which is which is wild because Bond died, you know, five months earlier. That's so insane. And then you go out in, in less than a year and put out. I mean, I think that speaks to. Yeah, Bond died in February. They released the album in 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 July. Uh, that speaks to the. You know, I don't think any band could do that. I mean, uh, not you know, not taking anything away from anybody, but you know, I feel like now if a a singer of any band died, there would be a long social media post, and they would go dark for three years because they couldn't handle it. It speaks to the mental toughness of ACDC to fucking be like, okay, well, our singer, who is probably one of the best, well, most well-known faces, was the face of the band. We're gonna go out there. We're gonna find a singer. We're gonna release the fucking biggest album we've ever put out, all within less than six months. So, I mean, that's. I mean, if that doesn't, you know, put it up there in the upper echelon, I don't know what would. Yeah, and and I think just even even the the material that they put out, you know, after that point in general, as far as the eighties are concerned, it's kind of tough to think about if you want to call it mainstream rock that wasn't necessarily falling into the hair or glam or, right. or metal in general, but just fucking rock and roll music. Straight up hard rock, these, yeah. These guys are there, right? Me personally, I'd rather sit down and listen to ACDC than fucking Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, you know? Like, nothing oh, against sure. them, nothing against fucking Bob Seger or, or Bad Company or any of that shit, late 70s or early 80s, whatever, but, like, 
these guys just whether it was shit that was included in fucking movies you know soundtracks or, or whatever um yeah you're right dude we grew up listening to this shit but there's something to it still dirty deeds for whatever reason even though it wasn't on uh, back in black like that song still fucking gets me speaking you know in terms of acpc so it's i think that was a good call putting that on your, on your honorable mentions list for sure you got a you got a third uh, honorable mention there so I, I don't have a third honorable mention. I know you mentioned scraps and essentially what, how I categorize those were, these were albums and we can, we can talk about these after we, we go through the list. I have, I have three that were albums for me that should have, they should have been included on the list, but would have been tied with certain ones. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to elaborate on which numbers they were tied with, but I have three that were going to be on that list, but we can, we can loop back around to that. Um, if you'd like, or I can just mention them as honorable mentions, whatever is going to be easiest. We can, we can loop back around. Okay. That sounds good. So, um, so real quick, um, as a, a third honorable mention, and then we'll talk scraps afterwards, uh, but a third honorable mention that I had to mention was definitely uh, Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. Uh, iconic album cover, uh, hits on hits on hits, uh, you know, just uh, just seminal for the 80s, in my opinion. Um, but yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another one. Fucking huge. I think any 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 bands or any artists like that, you know, your Brian Adams, things like that, um, you know, just big sound, guitarist, singer. I mean, obviously with with Bruce Springsteen, you know, because he, he also was able, he rocked fucking harmonica too, right? He had that Huey Lewis element to him yep. as well. So it's like, you know, just good old American boys, you know? Yeah. So, um... As my uh, preface before I dive into these, these are albums and bands, I guess, that that just spoke 80s to me. And they're like, if I was going to make a playlist, this is the first shit I would put on a playlist at a party. That is pretty much how I specified put uh, compiling this list. And, And it's it's not easy it's not easy it's not easy in in the slightest sense but i wanted to i wanted to do uh a preface before i i did this um so some of my favorite bands in the entire world aren't on this list even though my favorite some of my favorite albums from those bands are from the 80s so i i just wanted to get this out of the way right now so the ramones obviously are both of our favorite band of all time and they they're just so classic and they're so timeless to me that i i wouldn't it would be hard for me i mean i would probably jump and put too tough to die on here but they're just i wanted to level the playing field a little because i would I, if i wanted to i could have three fucking ramones albums on my top 1080s fucking thing and that i think discredits a too many other artists and doesn't give my musical interests and the albums that were important to me from the eighties a chance to shine. So I didn't include any Ramones on there, but I will say, you know, obviously the Ramones are my favorite band of all time. And for the reasons I just stated, that's why I didn't include any. And likewise with Motorhead, Motorhead, Ace of Spades could be on any top eighties list ever. They were doing what no band was doing at the time. Uh, 
and they influenced, I mean, Ace of Spades, there's no denying that, you know, Ace of Spades and the albums that came before that with Self-Titled and Overkill and Bomber, um, in those albums in the 70s, there's no denying that those albums influenced thrash metal. Um, and that's another, you know, Slayer. My, I mean, Motorhead, Ramones, Slayer, The Smiths, all those bands are in my top five favorite bands of all time. And I couldn't, I mean, it was so hard not to put a, a Smiths, uh, a Smiths album on here because the Smiths, I like the Smiths better than every band on this top 10 list. Um, and I think all four albums that were released in the eighties could be on this list. So again, do you, do you understand like, at least where I'm coming from with not putting any on there because I feel like it would be unfair to all the other albums from that band that I like, but it also would just wipe out so much um, other stuff that I wouldn't be able to kind of showcase all the stuff that I was into. Oh, dude, no, that definitely makes sense. So here, here's my disclaimer with this. I know you're getting ready to delve into your, dive into your number 10. So my disclaimer with this is, these are albums I was I followed more along the lines of these are albums that were that impacted me that happened to fall within that you know the decade of the 1980s um, not to spoil anything so I did not forego um, I did not forego the Ramones but when we get to that point I, we will obviously speak to it um, but the yeah these are records that just for whatever reason they're still with me today and this numbering system this is more or less my disclaimer this numbering system is it's a sliding scale um, these aren't necessarily consistent but they do tend to float within that top 10 range um, so this isn't a true i don't want to say it's a true representation in numerical format at the time that I made the list, it was as difficult as that was, but that's not to say my number five will bump up to my number two and vice versa. You know, like it's fluid. Right. That's, that's pretty much what I'm getting at. But I like, see, I, I wish I would have taken that approach. These are things that you put out at parties. These are more or less things for me. That's more or less where I, where I went to, but it's still, it's still dynamic enough of a list. So with that being said, um, yeah, jump right in, man. Yeah, and and like I said, I mean, if I was going to do it with my favorite bands of the '80s, I would literally have the you know the Smiths self-titled, the Smiths Meet Is Murder, the Smiths The Queen Is Dead, uh, Slayer Rain and Blood, Slayer South of Heaven, Metallica and Justice for All, Ramones Too Tough to Die, uh, Ramones Brain Drain. That's eight right there. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That, no, you're you're absolutely right. That's eight between, and then guess what? Ace of Spades and Orgasmatron. There, with with my favorite bands, I just named my top ten, and I felt like that would you know not speak to how um, how you know broad my my range in in the '80s and everything that I like in the '80s would be. But right there, I mean, just between the Smiths, Metallica, Slayer. Ramones and Motorhead, I would have done my top ten and would have been, you know, <laughs> we would have just been talking about those five fucking bands. Again, again. Yeah, again. <laughs> um, so th- th- you'll understand, but don't get it skewed. The Ramones are my favorite band of all time, and then you know, Motorhead, The Smiths, Slayer, all kind of are fluid within the top, the rest of the top five. Uh, just so that we're clear on that, because I don't want anyone to be like. 
oh, geez, I thought, I mean, not that I, why, why should I care? But I'm a sick music freak fan that has no fucking life. So I'm just like, I don't want anybody thinking that Slayer and Motorhead and the Smiths are not in my top five favorite bands. But I'm a sick right. fuck. What do you want? Uh, so my top ten, this is, I like all three members, of the, all three other bands of the big, the thrash metal big four. I like better than this band, but for some reason, this album cover and this album felt more eighties to me than all the other thrash albums. And I remember I had this album on vinyl. I sold it in the mid two thousands for, cause I was just trying to fucking pay bills in the apartment. And I, and I ended up selling some of the, you know, some records. I, I, I wish I hadn't cause I had found it at like a lawn sale when I was a, a younger, uh, younger lad. But uh, this band and this album always seemed like maybe it was just because, and don't get me wrong, I know the other three bands did wear Nike high tops, but for me, fashion in the eighties was just like a thing, and they were like a thrash metal band that wore like Jordans and like Nike Dunks, and they just seemed like you know they looked like a band that lived next door to you that like paint had a, had like a pickup truck and they painted houses on the weekends. They just happened to be in one of the big four of thrash. And I'm going with uh peace cells by uh Megadeth. Damn dude. Peace cells, but who's buying? I mean, uh, amazing, amazing record, amazing, uh, amazing songs. Uh, Good morning, Black Friday. Maybe one of the best uh, one-two like punches ever. Um, and just like I said, the album cover, the the uh, the sound of the record sonically, and like I said, like the Megadeth to me seemed more '80s than any of the other thrash bands. Um, and that record just uh, spoke more '80s to me than any of the other records. Although I like slayer anthrax and metallica more than megadeth i still love megadeth but that album to me is a more 80s representation of thrash metal than any of the other ones and mainly do especially to slayer and metallica that all those records from the 80s are so timeless and i can still listen to them to to this day and they don't feel dated to the 80s not to say in a detrimental way that Peace Cells does, but like I said, I just picture those like long-haired kids that are like fucking smoking weed out of a crushed Budweiser can, just painting houses on the weekend. That's who they reminded me of. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard them described that way. It's so good because I think we both know people or people that either were like that or who theoretically could have been, like been that. yes. That's fucking so good, dude. <laughs> Excellent. So, so I'm going to take a little different uh, fucking, we'll, we'll call it a complete 180 here with my number 10. My number 10. Um, I know that we've talked about this, this artist in particular, specifically this album. I think there's a, I'm pretty sure somewhere in the fucking Google sphere of our goddamn conversation, this thread exists. Actually, I know it exists. Uh, my number 10 is the 1988 release, uh, Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl. Um, now, growing up, um, this was something that I heard. 
I, it wasn't regularly, but I, it would always resonate me, especially with like straight up. I think it was more just Y94 FM type shit, you know, stuff that my mom would put on when we were driving because it wasn't offensive music. Hot 1079 is too risque. You know, 93Q plays, you know, the, 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 the new pop stuff. So your 80s, um, late 80s, early 90s type adult contemporary, adult alternative, whatever. But this was an, this was something that I owned both on CD and on vinyl. The vinyl came later. I had bought the CD initially. Um, this album for me is huge because the amount the fucking six singles on there. It, it's it's insane. You you have you have two sides of a record. Okay, you have an A and a B side, and each one of these are just fucking packed. So this is something very easily that that not only do I think of, okay, this is the 80s, but you have somebody who more or less, you know, a choreographer that's coming out of nowhere. Her story in general is just fascinating, right? Um, that and, you know, the Opposites Attract video in and of itself is very amusing. <laughs> Fucking, you know, car, cartoon. It's the cartoon cat-like, right? rabbit kind of yeah. shit, you know? So it's, for me, it's the aesthetic is there. Um, the sound, the production is fucking huge. I mean, realistically, anytime that you have an artist that has six successful fucking singles, I think, I, I think what she had three of them go number one or something off that album. So it, you check me on that. It, it's either three or four, but I know that they were number one hits for her, um, which is massive for an artist, let alone their debut fucking record. Um, so for me, this is this is my number ten uh, top top overall for for the eighties. It's huge. I can put this on at any time and listen to it. And be fucking more than happy. With See, I, I love this selection because this captures that late eighties going into the early nineties. Yeah, like pre hip because Paul. That's this forever. Your girl is pre hip hop. Because mm-hmm. that those like dance parts are the you know the the dance beats are beats that went on to be huge with bigger artists like TLC and you know SWV and, and all those R and B groups of the nineties. There's no getting around it that the Paula Abdul record, this Paula Abdul record specifically, mm-hmm. influenced a lot of those like dance beats like that. Like I don't even know what you want to call it, like that. All that. Sound, sounds like it could be, you know, the the alternative uh, choice to like the all of that uh, theme song. But there was like that interesting time in the late '80s where where hip hop really started to come into prominence, and we got like a little bit of that hip hop into the R and B, especially with uh, you know Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown, uh, especially the that Bobby Brown record. Um, I mean, you talk about like like that shit like listen to my prerogative and this that was like pre-hip-hop pop music that was rearing its head as we went into the 90s too and it was just such a it's such a like specific sound to me and i mean dude it's babyface man oh babyface obviously one of the has done so much producing and has shaped so many I mean, I think he's got he's got like eleven Grammy awards or something like that. I mean, it's fucking it's insane. Like the guy is, the guy is a genius. There's no getting around that. Yeah, and and you know, it's interesting that you bring up those other groups too, your TLCs, etc. I mean, this it, that's another thing that I find very fascinating is 
I wouldn't necessarily put her in the realm of a diva, right? If we're getting into that type of territory, but as a solo artist, um, that that's huge. She's not part of a, she's not part of a crew. It's not a TLC. She's not, you know, she's not in a, a trio. This is just her. Obviously a lot of that went into the production behind the album itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, the mark, I think this left, you're right. It's a very, it was a very interesting time because, um, as you said, it was, it was all, you know, pre nineties hip hop, which has had an astounding impact on our generation alone. I, that's something I can go to any, any party, any hangout. And at some point we will loop around to like, you know, early nineties hip hop stuff, whether it's the more pop friendly uh, element of it, or, you know, getting straight into like you know, anything that Dre put out, Snoop, any of that shit. So it's interesting that, uh, it's interesting for me. I find that this is something that, that always surfaces. I don't know. This just always stuck with me. So complete 180 from Megadeth, but <laughs> you have to pull out duel for every girl. That's my number 10. Fuck yeah. So, um, my, uh, my number 10 was Peace Cells, which was from 1986. And my next, um, my next two are also from 1986 as well. So, um, Alice Cooper's Constrictor, uh, widely, uh, considered his comeback record. Um, he had in tow, uh, Kip Winger on bass, who, um, later went on to form Winger, uh, just, I think a year and a half later and got his own record deal. Um, and Kane Roberts, uh, super, super muscle bound, like Sylvester Stallone looking guy who had insane muscles and, Guitars shaped like machine guns and the blue fire added to Alice's stage show. But the album constrictor, uh, I think Alice's, a lot of people consider uh, Trash his like big comeback record, which came out three years later in 89. And he had Raise Your Fist and Yell uh, about a year and a half after Constrictor. And for some reason, they, they, they've kind of like, because Trash was so huge. That they forgot, like that Constrictor made Alice like a must see live act again after kind of being stagnant since the late seventies, uh, and you know he's back. This is his first album that he had been sober on, um, and uh, has remained sober since. And it's just the album cover with the bow Constrictor wrapped around him. I mean, there's obviously a horror element in Alice Cooper that I've always liked and been attached to, but mainly this album as well. Because uh, he's back, the man behind the mask, the closing track on this appeared as the theme song in Friday the 13th Part 6 from the same year, 1986. Um, And I think uh, he had a couple other songs that were kind of really popular off this that appeared on that that one, too. I I think uh, Hot Rock Summer. But uh, regardless, I love the album. I think it is his comeback record. He started playing stadiums again, and he had an amazing band with Kip Winger and Kane Roberts at that point. And, uh, yeah, it just uh, speaks 80s to me for more than one reason. Obviously, the the Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives Connection, uh, big time as well. Nice. I didn't know that that he has been sober since. That's Yeah, he's been sober, I think. Phenomenal. He got sober a few years before the record. Because uh, he went into uh, in an asylum, like a, a loony bin, pretty much, because they didn't have like rehab centers back then, really. Uh, if they did, they were harder to find and way more expensive. He went into a legit loony bin 
and he ended up writing a record about uh about you know all the crazy people every song was about a different person in the asylum that he was in there with that's wild man oh yeah so so my number nine it's interesting that you had mentioned the whole 1986 thing i think there's something there looking through this i think i have i guess i only have one other that was released in 1986 that's on this top 10 but um, my number nine is the uh, 1986 release of License to Ill by the Beastie Boys. So to, to give a little background on this, um, specifically in, in throughout high school, um, with the exception of the, the sh- you know, the shit that we kind of grew up hearing on the radio, you know, your early 90s hip hop stuff um, that everyone kind of knew and it was just there, you know, it was fun but not necessarily something that I would listen to in my room, right? It was right. more kind of, oh, if it's on socially, sure. I'm not going to seek this out on my own. I was very selective with with just hip-hop in, in, in general, um, especially throughout high school. And, and even now, I'm still very, very picky about it. But for whatever reason, um, right around the end of high school, going to college, um, I'd stumbled across, I'd heard of the Beastie Boys forever, obviously, um, you know, intergalactic, all that shit was just like, it was kind of just something that was there. I didn't hate it. I liked it, whatever. But I never really sat down and listened to their, you know, Life's Just Ill being, you know, one of the most, uh, people would say a turning point for the band, which was true because at the time, you know, prior to, to them doing hip hop, they were like a legit, like punk, almost, you know, punk thrash band. And I think for me, that was something I found very interesting because at that time, um, just kind of being fully enveloped in, in punk rock and just rock music in general. So I found that to be a very interesting story, the transition to that, because realistically, you know, at that time too, listening to Public Enemy, um, Rage Against the Machine, stuff like that, where you kind of bridged uh, genres a little bit. Um, I, I listened to this and then, you know, that, that freshman year of college in particular just this would be something that would be always beyond Paul Revere st- song is fucking great. Slow and low fucking fantastic. And I not only, like I said, I, I enjoyed the story of the band, um, but I found it interesting. These guys were making good, not super aggressive or abrasive music. It was fun. It was fun shit. And it was funny too. You know, I, I I, I don't I don't know as if I would necessarily listen to this album as a as a serious album in the way that I would listen to like their instrumental release of like the mix up, which showcases their true musical abilities to to play uh, to play and compose you know full length instrumental songs. Um, but it's it's just it's fucking great, man. It's it's a fun record and it kind of touches into that the the eighties hip-hop movement a little bit oh yeah um, for sure i mean and, it's and, super important to hip-hop in general mm-hmm. and, and and the aesthetic too the three of them out there you know this is this is pre-mix master mic stuff um so you don't have you don't have the tweak scratch the the stuff that kind of more de- define them in in the, in the 1990s uh so to speak that added element of now we have like a dj who's scratching and who's kind of selecting stuff and sampling and he's his own you know qu- you know musician you know quote-unquote musician but um, he's his own sound in there so it's that that is my that is my number nine uh license to ill by the beastie boys so yeah the beastie boys were just uh 
I mean, I've actually went back uh, recently and revisited a lot of uh, Beastie Boys stuff. Um, just kind of, uh, again, another band that's kind of unprecedented for their time, especially, you know, they, there's no denying that they brought a lot of white teenagers to the hip hop scene and probably exposed them to, you know, bands that were coming up at the time as well, like the, the public enemies and, you know, I mean, and I think I would probably credit Anthrax with their uh, Public Enemy collab for Bring the Noise as well. Oh, yeah. uh, that stuff brought a lot of... Because the BC Boys were also rock, so it was people that would never think that they would be, you know, white uh, teenagers who never thought that they would be into hip-hop or didn't think that they were cool enough to listen to hip-hop uh, because there was a cool factor with hip-hop that, like, you know you would just seem, I don't know, like you were a, a poser, for lack of a better word. Uh, but they made it okay, I think, for white suburban kids to be like, yeah, I fucking like hip-hop. Uh, and they eased, you know, License to Ill, it's very e You can ease those kids in that have only really listened to, you know, Bruce Springsteen or ACDC or anything like that. They could ease you in because there were still guitar parts and Fight for Your Right was such a huge song and it was, you know, very, very rock uh, but then you got the other tracks on there that were a little more hip hop. Uh, huge, huge, huge album still to this day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's uh, it's definitely one of those things, especially from if, if you look at even even Paul's boutique and in, in, in onward in their um, in their discography, it was also extremely minimalistic. Uh, for, you know, for their album for hip hop, which was indicative of the stuff that was being released at the time. It wasn't this tons crazy tons of samples it was it was very you know if you want to call it roots obviously not every single song but um you know the songs i mentioned very they're simple right simple beat simple little lead melody um it's easy to follow along with and for me i don't know at the time especially when it like i said that that first year of college i was doing a lot of walking um just because like in college right you're walking everywhere um so this was just something that was easy to travel with. It was something that wasn't it wasn't overly demanding as far as like I'm not trying to listen to fucking like explosions in the sky and follow along with those fucking melodies. You know, this is something I can just put on and go. So right. it kind of it kind of I rode with it that way. For sure. So my uh, my number eight is uh, this artist's second best selling album, uh, and I, I will say that she sold. Every one of her records up until 2008's Hard Candy was um, was has gone platinum, uh, and the only record that's above this one is Diamond, and this one is seven times platinum. So if that speaks to the credibility of this album, this is Madonna's 1986 True Blue, which is as I said, seven times platinum. The only thing that's higher that sold more than this is Like a Virgin. Obviously, the whole sex element sells. So, like, like a Virgin is Diamond. This is seven times platinum, her second best-selling album. Uh, and uh, I know you and I have, have talked uh, a lot about uh, Madonna. Uh, you know, you, you know, you talk borderline. Uh, you know, like a Virgin, anything like that. But for me, True Blue was like Madonna, Madonna's Madonna. And uh, this record was always my favorite, and I just I love the cover artwork is just huge, 
and uh, just so many. I mean, her her in general, she had so many hits, just hit after hit on album after album. But like "Live to Tell," one of my favorite songs, like of all time. "Open Your Heart" might be one of the best pop songs ever written. I mean, it's just. Uh, I mean, "True Blue" obviously written about her boyfriend at the time, Sean Penn. Uh, and uh, Live to Tell actually appearing in At Close Range, which featured Sean Penn, Christopher Walken, another great movie from the uh, same year. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Madonna is just, uh, I mean, if there if there is one female artist you would say, I mean, if you're not saying Pat Benatar, uh, I mean, obviously Madonna was way bigger. Um, Madonna is just so pivotal to the 80s. So... Madonna may or may not make an appearance on my list at some point. We will see. But I, uh, I agree with everything you said, man. I mean, we, as you had prefaced, you and I have, have spoken uh, at, at length on, on the importance of Madonna. And I don't, think, I don't think that pop music and or even the way in which, um, you know, I don't think that Paula Abdul's success, just to go back to that, I don't think her success would have been as much of an impact as she had if it weren't for what Madonna had accomplished. Oh, right? absolutely. She, she definitely blazed the way. And, and of course, there were there were very, very strong uh, female singers prior to Madonna um, working with Jellybean Benitez, like, you know, prior to all that stuff. You had your Donna Summers, you know, kind of your, your, your disco queens, et cetera. But for what was accomplished in the 80s and then in, in the late 80s into the 90s, you, you see the research, you know, the, the surfacing of your Mariah Carey's and stuff like that. I think that Madonna was one of those pioneers. Um, and, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that down the road because I have a couple things to say about that because, like I said, she may or may not go onto this list. But True Blue is fucking pristine album. No, uh, 100%. So what do you got for your uh, number seven here? Or wait, is it your number eight? Number eight. Number so eight. my number eight is uh, <laughs> my number eight is the 1982 self-titled release by A Flock of Seagulls. Nice. And the reason I chose this uh, for me is because I, I, I love the album as a whole. Uh, Space Age Love Song is still one of my just favorite 80s new wave songs. Um, it, I found it to be an interesting song as a time capsule because it encompassed, at least in my opinion, as far as new wave is concerned, however you want to box that in as a genre. I think that Iran and obviously Space Age, they were, they were early enough in the movement to be very seminal. And I think a lot of individuals would emulate that sound later on, specifically the guitar work. Um, you know, I also found it extremely interesting because I, I think I discovered this way back fucking in like middle school or high school, the whole fucking like VH1 pop-up videos. And of course, uh, Iran would come on. I, I obviously found out, and this is, you know, obviously common knowledge now with fucking Wikipedia and shit, but like at a young age, I found out that, that their guitarist at the time, especially when they shot and recorded this, he was fucking 16. Yeah, the lead guitarist for for a huge band, call them one hit wonders, whatever the fuck you want. 
there's no denying the fact that they scored, you know, multiple hits with a, a kid <laughs> manning guitar work. Yeah. Um, you know, two brothers that were fucking hairstylists. It was just the whole story behind these guys. I found very interesting and the album's fucking solid. It's a solid fucking timepiece for the eighties. It's a solid timepiece for new wave music. And I know that both you and I have, have a soft spot for that as well. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my number eight. And just as an aside, I, I, I both Hannah, myself and uh, my buddy Joe got to see these guys, um, on one of those traveling, you know, not, it came from the eighties kind of touring sets where each band goes out and plays for, you know, 20 minutes or, you know, 15 minutes or whatever. But, uh, but the, all, all the original members came out they were, they were the headliner and, uh, they're fucking they still got it man they, they still sound solid the music is still there it's super full um so yeah that 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 rounds out my number eight uh, i remember you mentioning how great they were live and uh yeah call them what you want one hit wonder or whatever but i mean their influence is i mean a lot of people i think try to shit talk a one hit wonder but to have a hit and to have a hit like i ran and it be so huge i mean i i don't take any pot shots at one hit wonders because to have uh you know a career of mediocre you know benny mardonis level hits or to have one gigantic r.i.p benny mardonis by the way um or have one huge worldwide phenomenon of a song in iran i mean give me that give me that over the career of i mean if you're talking you know you know, there's no denying the Flock Seagulls uh, imprint, especially with just just one song alone. Right. Well, and, and even even throwing that on too, you know, and that that was more or less a lion's share of what they played in their live set. It was about a maybe 25 minute, half an hour set, so it was solid. But you know, telecommunication, DNA, shit like that, all stuff off their first record. It's still solid. And as an aside, before we move on, I did not know that that. that which looking motherfucker died? Benny Mardonis is dead. Yeah, he died this week. Oh shit, dude! Yeah, he wow. died died this past week. Dude, rip in peace. We won't be seeing him at the Syracuse flea market anymore. No, nope. damn, dude. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anywho, um, so my next two are 1985 releases. Uh, two of three. So there's three, one, two, three, and then one. Two, three, four. So four nineteen eighty six, and we got two or three nineteen eighty fives. Two coming up right now. Number seven. This is another record you and I have talked endlessly about. I own two copies of this uh, on vinyl. I own a copy of this on cassette and a copy on CD. That should speak to how much I love this record and how much. Uh, of a party record this indeed is phil collins uh no jacket required hell yeah dude hell yeah uh just a huge huge album so many hits uh uh billy don't you lose my number susudio i mean it's uh it's a huge album it sounds huge um for phil collins to come out and pretty much, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Genesis because I love Genesis. But for Phil Collins to pretty much come out and blow Genesis mm-hmm. off everybody's radar, 
I I mean is is pretty impressive, obviously with face value and stuff, but for him to fo- to come and to you know follow up face value, hello, I must be going. Uh, you know, and then have a pretty much a three-year hiatus. I mean, he's playing live, obviously, but then not have a album. And I think that that three years between Hello, I Must Be Going and No Jacket Required, I think he just kind of like soaked in a bunch of ideas. And we got No Jacket Required dead nuts in the middle of the 80s, and he toured on it for four years after that. So I think that speaks to the hugeness of No Jacket Required and just the endless re-listenability for, especially for uh, a junior album, uh, you know, the third in his. I mean, when you open an album with Tessudio, you're putting your cock on the table. Oh, it's it's out there. It, people are seeing it. I mean, it's just. Uh, I mean, and then you got one more night. Uh, who said I would? I mean, it's just. I mean, take me home. Like, get out of here. I mean, it's just. It's insane. Phil Collins, too, is, is, or I should say the topic of Phil Collins, the topic of Genesis, it's very polarizing because people are very, very divided into camps, especially with Genesis. People are just like, no, I'm more of a Peter Gabriel guy. I like all of the early fucking Genesis stuff. For me, I gravitate. I have no shame in saying I'm a str- more or less strictly a Phil Collins era Genesis, everything from Duke on forward. Oh, 100%. I don't even fuck with anything non-Phil. No, it's, it's a little too progressive for me. Um, but, uh, or proggy or however you want to describe that. Um, but yeah, Phil Collins in general, I mean, this even, even alone as a single, just the studio in general, it's, I ended up stumbling across like the 12 inch single of it. And it's, it's just such a big fucking song. You're right. The, the cock was on the table and he was just telling everybody at that time too, um, for what was going on with the band, um, just in general, again, that's another group I got to see thankfully on, I think it was a 2000, 2007 reunion tour or one of the reunion tours. Um, I got to see them all live and He's just his voice is still intact, which I find very interesting. Um, that he's been able to, to kind of keep that specifically because he, he handled lead singing for years, playing drums, etc. But if you put if you match up Invisible Touch, which is a fantastic Genesis record, um, and then you look at the, the solo material in that same time frame, all very good, but as far as this is Phil Collins doing this on his own. That's, that's huge, dude. It's especially for like just pop hits, radio hits, radio friendly stuff, listenability. Um, not that invisible touch wasn't some people would argue that invisible touch was one of their most pop albums to that point. Um, I don't know there's just something to be said for that. What he accomplished on his own is huge. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. Um, but yeah, what's uh, what do you got for your number seven? So my number seven um, is the Misfits Walk Among Us 1982 release. Um, the reason I included this is because I think the majority of these songs, this is more or less the Misfits that I pretty much heard for the first time. Um, another band that you and I have talked endlessly about, their different incarnations, um, having seen them um, both together and separately in those various incarnations. Um, 
I just think that this not only for the time frame was huge for the style of punk that they were playing, the aesthetic they were going after. I won't bel- I won't fucking dive too much into this because this is just shit that you and I would either agree on or we have said before. Or whatever. Right, it's right. Fucking what people think in general. Um, but this this just is was just a huge huge record for me um, in general, and I needed to include it on my list. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that is my number seven. Yeah, I mean, Misfits, obviously, uh, small catalog in the Danzig era, but uh, very, you know, band that didn't get a lot of recognition were very underground at the time and then later just became like a, a phenomenon and just so huge in the the logo and the... I, I mean, they're just kind of like a, such an anomalic uh, type band uh, to see that you could go to Walmart and get a a, a crimson a crimson ghost uh, shirt now is kind of kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, Misfits. I mean, we, another band we could talk endlessly about. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that knows us knows how how much we uh, how much we love and adore the Misfits. But uh, but yeah, sticking with a uh, horror theme uh, bands on here. Um, Another 1985 gem. This may be the ultimate party album. I don't think there is a better party album ever made, period. There isn't one. Is uh, Danny Elfman's good old Oingo Boingo with Dead Man's Party, 1985. I mean, the obviously the horror influence is there. It's Danny Elfman. And this is before he was known as like a horror music score guy. Um, you know, this is before collaborations with Tim Burton. Actually, he he had just uh, he had done Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure the same year, 1985. But you know, it was before Edward Scissorhands. It was before Beetlejuice. It was before Batman Returns. All the horrorness that he is known for, and his, his longtime partnership with Tim Burton. This is all predates it. But I mean, you're talking that they. One, they appear in one of the greatest party scenes ever in Back to School in 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, I mean, Just Another Day might be, I might chisel that fucking entire song, on, have it chiseled on my fucking goddamn crypt wherever my fucking mortal coil is fucking residing <laughs> in the next, you know, for who knows, 13 years. Fucking, I don't know if fucking COVID's going to make a fucking... A, a super comeback in fucking 2033, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just a fucking just another day. Dead man's party. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's so fucking good. The entire album is just. Uh, you can't. Uh, I mean, stay. Uh, you know, like a half-ass ballad. Uh, I mean, it's just. I mean, I I don't even know what I could say that. You couldn't be said by someone just listening to it. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it in full. Buy several copies. Uh, live by it. And I, I don't know what else to say. It's just incorporated horror elements without being and coming across scary or horrific, I guess. And just being super bright, neon, but weird, offbeat, just fucking strange uh, you know, Weird Science, obviously, another huge uh, song for them, and obviously appearing in the, the movie. I mean, just just the best weird band of all time that has some of the greatest songs 
of all time. So it's really funny, dude. We were just talking about this album. Yes, we were just talking about that album last night. Um, so I have, I will, I will raise the bar here, or I will up the ante, so to speak. So I, in my opinion, I think this is the ultimate party record. Um, this is 1983's uh, Huey Lewis and the News sports uh, release. Um, again, another artist I got to see, you know, fucking Turning Stone, which was fan fucking tastic. But as far as early albums that I had gotten, um, right around the time that I had initially started collecting or, or really listening to records when I was you know, ninth grade, tenth grade, you know, like this was part of that original hall that I had uh, inherited from my dad. I don't remember if this was one of those that were included in there. I believe it was. Um, but it just, for whatever reason, man, it just, it stuck with me. Um, in general, you know, uh, there's something about the, the way in which these guys play pop music. It's, I just think it's, it's unapologetic. Um, uh, talk about another band too, even at the time when I got to see him, I think it was 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. Um, another band stuck together, all, you know, more or less original, all original members. Um, you know, whatever, again, there, these guys aren't, you know, your, your one hit wonders, eighties pop band. Um, there's, you know, their last record. Um, unfortunately I, you know, obviously with Huey kind of losing his hearing or having issues with one of his hearing, one of his ears. Um, if you get a chance, check out the album weather that they put out. Um, I think it was technically either this past late 2019 or early 2020, I think it was 2020. Um, it's only a handful of songs. I think I ended up clocking in at like seven songs, eight songs. Technically, I guess you'd call it an EP, but um, sports is huge, dude. Um, you know, the, the, for the singles alone, um, you know, Hard Rock and Roll, I, talk about an album that you, for me anyways, I remember the first time I heard their songs, not to mention the acclaim that the band got, not only from Back to the Future and American Psycho, but this album in particular is, is just massive. For those that aren't necessarily huge Huey Lewis guys, check out uh, uh, You Crank Me Up, which is, or You Crack Me Up, which is uh, a non, you know, single song. It's fucking fantastic. It's, you know, falling into that 80s pop, borderline new wave, if you want to call it that song in particular. Um, the bass playing in it, solid right through. Um, it, it, they're just a super, I, I find them a very interesting band, an incorporation of horns, harmonica, you know, bass, keyboards. It's got it all. Uh, and and th this album in particular is just still, still to this day, holds up, love throwing singles on, you know, singles from this record on at parties. It's just, it's fucking awesome. And they're a band that always incorporated and had the bass. This is what I always found interesting is they're, they're a pop band, but they're a hard rock band, but they're a blues-inspired rock band. Mm -hmm. And oh. to get the blues, to have such huge pop songs out of a blues-based band is not only impressive, but it's admirable. Mm -hmm. Very much agreed. And when, when you stick to the core of, of your, your roots with blues-inspired music, but then you're writing huge fucking pop songs, I mean, that's, uh, that's impressive and... That's why they're they're going down as one of the one of the best, honestly. Mm -hmm. So my uh, number five, we're cracking into the top five here. Uh, nineteen eighty six, uh, yet again, the last of the nineteen eighty sixers. Um, 
so this album I owned on cassette first. Um, huge record, so many huge songs. Obviously, one has been just such overplayed to death that some people can't handle it. But if I go two, three years without listening to it and I throw it on, like it's it's hard not to to love the 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 vocal fucking uh, what do you call it? what do you call the voice box things? Uh, I forget vocoder. Vocoder, yeah. It was it a vocoder or a voice box like. Um, you know how, like, voice box, I would consider, like, the shit that, like, Peter Frampton did, but vocoder yeah. is more like your Daft Punk fucking... No, 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 uh, that, yeah. Zap, so, you know, any of that shit. So, I'll quit with the preambles. It's uh, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. All right. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the, it's the Peter Frampton gimmick, the fucking hose with the... Yeah, the voice box, Nick yeah. Welch, his teeth rattling in his head type shit. Yeah. yeah dude, that's, <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's voice box. Um, just huge songs, uh, obviously one of the biggest that were considered a hair metal band, but they brought themselves to like a pop rock band with this and kind of broke out of the hair metal, uh, moniker, I guess, uh, with the hugeness of, you know, uh, living on a prayer, uh, wanted dead or alive is one of my favorite songs pretty much ever. Um, but you know, they had just come off from. They're self-titled, which was 1984, uh, 7,800 Fahrenheit. Uh, and then this was the album that really solidified them as uh, a huge everything band, which is uh, funny. You know, the, the cover is is great because the original cover is like a girl with like a ripped T-shirt and it's like a yellow shirt. It says Slippery When Wet and it's a very 80s looking album cover with like a blue background, pink border, bright neon yellow shirt this hot chick her boobs kind of little exposed with a rib shirt all wet says slippery when wet mercury uh rejected the album cover said no uh and they were at a photo shoot and they literally had the photographer they took a a a black trash bag and and fucking sprayed it with water and spell out slippery when wet and said there there's your fucking album cover wild (laughs) and it's like one of the obviously the rejected album cover is is great uh but and then the the bon jovi slippery when wet album cover that's just a black black bag that says slippery when wet uh goes on to be iconic but so many another one we got four four hit singles and then just another one you listen to the full record every song is a, a banger you know, you know, let it obviously you give love a bad name and living on a prayer, wanted dead or alive. Uh, those one never say goodbye was their ballad, but then like raise your hands without love, wild in the streets, social disease, let it rock. I mean, the, just the it's uh, in, insane songs. Every song's a banger. Grew up loving it. It was a it was a Sash cassette handed down to me, and uh, nice. it it just it reeked, stunk, smelled, and decayed of the '80s, and I love it. So, my uh, my n- number five is also a 1986 release, and it does happen to also be the last 1986 reference in my list as well. Um, this is the eight track fucking banger of an album. It's uh, Metallica's Master of Puppets, and the reason the reason I wanted to include this in particular is this album from an instrumentation perspective obviously yes cliff burton's last album with the bands rip in peace but but more importantly um you had eight songs that were just 
fucking massive. And although, for me, again, it's not that I'm picky with metal. I know we've talked about this. Like, I tend to more, you know, gravitate towards more like punk rock and, and shit like that. But as far as what really blew me away about this was the way in which they compose songs. I'm sorry, Battery is still fucking insane. Hey, all, all the songs on here. Sanitarium's fucking great. Welcome home. It's Master Puppets in general. The, 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 so the, the album title as a song, like the song itself, is still, every time I hear it, it still blows me away. I fucking love it. And it, there's something to this. The first time I remember getting this in, uh, early on in high school, I think it was right, you know, freshman year. This is one of the ones Jeff Swadowski loaned me a CD. Um, I listened to it obsessively, you know, on the bus to my little fucking CD player, went out and got the, got the CD self and found a reasonably priced, uh, vinyl pressing of it yet. But this is just something as, again, as far as metal is concerned, it just still blows me away to this day. I fucking love it. It's, that's, it's easily my favorite, most favorite Metallica record, um, and uh, yeah, that that's my uh, that's my number five. So Metallica is a huge band for me. I obviously, I, I, I'm not gonna lie to anybody. And if you asked me ten years ago, uh or I, I guess like eleven, twelve years ago, um, you know, I, I would say you know I always loved the Black Album. I respect mm-hmm. what they did with the Black Album. Obviously, it's huge, and the songs are still rippers. But I was just like, yeah, I wasn't really into Load or Reload. Or anything like that. The last Metallica record, uh, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, I think was a true return to form. Something everyone wanted uh, on Death Magnetic. And we kind of got like a little taste of it. Um, I'm a huge... Uh, I, I, I grew to love the rock version of Metallica. Which is Load, Reload, and pretty much Saint Anger. Um, those are obviously lesser records. Uh, those first four records are the pinnacle of Metallica, and I, I do love the Black Album. But uh, yeah, I mean, Master of Puppets. Obviously, it's it's Cliff's uh, swan song uh, for his for the albums. Uh, I, I will, and like I said, I, I I couldn't put I couldn't put Injustice for on there and not have Ride the Lightning too because those are my two favorite Metallica records. But I mean, I'll say this to, to wrap up the Metallica talk is listen to their, their after they got Jason uh, on bass, listen to Master Songs live from like 87 to like 93. And Battery Live is just so fucking like aggressive. It's, it's great. Seeing, being able to, to catch their set at Bonnaroo in 2008 was a, a fucking treat, and that's a whole other story in and of itself. But um, I, I, could, I, I knew they were going to fucking deliver, obviously. Um, I, I just didn't know really what to expect. You can all, they're, they're one of those bands where you can watch as much fucking live footage as you want. There's a difference when you hear, when they bust in the fucking, like, trapped under ice and you're like okay i don't know what's gonna happen right now <laughs> you know it's, it's shit like that where it's like holy fuck so oh, yeah so anyway moving on uh so number four so the top four have been juggled around a lot the last 12 hours uh but here it is 1987's uh and i, I know you're very uh 
I don't know if we've talked about it much. I just know that we've had conversations, and I know that you're kind of poo-poo on them. But I already know, I already know what you're gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favorite bands of all time, uh, and I mean the the record just huge. Uh, 1987's uh, Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses. And their influence, I think, I've always appreciated uh, because they were... I mean, Duff is a punk guy, Mm -hmm. and I always loved the punk sensibilities of of, uh, Appetite for Destruction. And... All their, you know, releases with the uh, with the classic lineup, and then of course, the Usual Illusion albums were, you know, Izzy ended up leaving after the recordings, and they brought on Matt Sorum on drums. But so not so much those, but that the early, you know, pre Appetite and Appetite, obviously being their debut, but um, huge record. I mean, you're talking, you know, you're mixing a- Axel, obviously inspired by like the Bon Scotts of the world and then you got duff who is like a, a punk guy who was in nothing but punk bands before that self-taught slash who's kind of like the 70s guitar worshiper but also was a huge motorhead guy mm-hmm. uh and then you know izzy stradlin what like just a, a phenomenal rhythm player one of the best songwriter the best songwriter in the band hands down uh the album just it's one of the biggest selling albums ever and obviously we all know welcome to the jungle november rain and uh and uh sweet child of mine are just so or not november rain uh but sweet child of mine is uh just so they're they're so overplayed at this point that i understand i understand everyone's hatred to those because it seemed like for like 20 years you couldn't turn on terrestrial radio without hearing uh without hearing welcome to the jungle or sweet child of mine mm-hmm. and paradise city as well uh you know those three songs were just so uh over overplayed um but the songs like you know it's so easy and night train and out to get me and uh in your crazy and rocket queen uh those songs are just I mean, if you didn't have Welcome to the Jungle and Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine on there, I think it would still be one of the best records of all time. Now, where do you stand with... When did you listen to this? Have you listened to this record in full? Like, where do you stand on it? Because I know you have not been a Guns N' Roses uh, uh, guy ever. (laughs) No, um, and, and just to give an aside as to why, I think a lot of it just stemmed from really what you were talking about with, you know, Treasure Radio. Um, you know, growing up, aside from CDs, cassettes, vinyls, you know, whatever would be played at, you know, my parents' house or wherever, a lot of classic rock radio was played. That was just the, the name of the game, especially when we were out doing stuff on the boat, you know, fucking horseback riding, you name it. There, there wasn't necessarily... Um, any room for anything else so you would have these repeated offender songs or artists and these were definitely one of them and for for whatever reason the, the instrumentation was always good i think it was more axel's voice the delivering of his voice i, I never really it never caught me 
um, specifically the instrumentation behind Paradise City. Like, it's a, you know, those are there's some punk riffs in there for sure. You know, it, it's pretty obvious um, or, or elements, you know, uh, bastardizations of punk riffs, if you will. Uh, the speed is there, um, but uh, I don't think I've ever listened to this album in full. Um, but it just never spoke to me. And then I think also what is more or less unfair, uh, or what you could call unfair for me, judging the band. Um, I then obviously learned about, you know, the story behind how Axel and or the band would kind of treat audiences and when they would go and play. And it just kind of gave me a weird taste in my mouth. And I was kind of like, I don't know about these guys. Is anybody that big, you know? Um, but again, that's just, that's just me. Um, so to answer your question, no, um, I've never really been a GNR guy. Um, and I've never listened to this album in full other than the stuff that I've heard. But that's also kind of the flip side of why I enjoy doing these lists specifically with you because we both have such wide palettes of, of music and we can each speak to kind of what we like and why it's important to us. Um, you know, and we're not being inflammatory and like flipping out being like, oh, I can't fucking believe it. Right, right. You know, like, but uh, yeah, that, that was just for, for whatever reason, I just never, for those, I guess for those reasons, I just never never did anything for me um but i know that duff has punk credentials it's just like flea i don't fucking like i don't like red hot chili peppers all right but <laughs> i know i know that i know that flea has his time when he was playing with fucking fear like he has his you know he has his fucking creds if you will so i get it it's like shefflet with in in fucking food fighters i love food fighters shefflet was fucking up he was a punk rocker so it's like I get these things. Pat Smear with the germs. I, I get that there's a lot of crossover uh, between punk rock and, you know, some of these other, what we'll call more more uh, popularized, you know, bands and stuff. So, yeah, that's just kind of where I sit with them. So I will, uh, I will, I will task you to say this. Go to whatever your listening platform is. Skip Welcome to the Jungle, which is the first track. Listen to... It's so easy in Night Train. If you absolutely cannot get into those, then I will completely write. I will completely be fine with you not having anything to do with the band. I'll completely okay. respect it. But listen to It's So Easy in Night Train tracks two and three. Okay. It's So Easy in Night Train. That's, I can do that. I can definitely do that. <laughs> Just six minutes, like six minutes and 47 seconds of your time. And I'll never fuck. I'll never, I'll never force them on you ever again. I can definitely do that. You you heard it here first, folks. I'm agreeing to listen to some Guns N' Roses. Um, and I think that's also part of the reason, too. It's You're not like, oh, dude, come on. You gotta fucking listen to, you know, like every other fucking time. No, because we all know what it's like for one band to just be so beloved, and we're just not into them. And, yeah, and, and people constantly are trying to fucking... And you know what the worst part is? I think the people that are most, that will flip out most about that when it's like, ah, I know they don't really do anything. The people that fucking react the most, it's like, motherfucker, you're not, are you really into that music that much? You know, it's like, you're no. fucking lecture no. me about it. It's always, it's like, I don't know, nothing against like my little brother who's like a big classic rock guy and he's very knowledgeable. He's very knowledgeable about classic rock stuff. But he would be the type of person where he'd be like, well, I don't know about those guys. Like, Come on, dude, really? Like, it's like, motherfucker, you... You just discovered music, bitch. Like, get the fuck out of here. But, uh, like, but I'm also like, 
I, I'm more than a casual fan of Guns N' Roses. Like I own, I own everything that they've ever put out. Like I own bootlegs. Like uh, they're they're very important to me. So if like I said, if you can listen to It's So Easy Night Train, just be like, yeah, not for me. I'm like, yeah, that's completely fine. Because there's like we said, there's bands that everyone has that are like, people are like, really, really, you not you're not yeah. into. I mean, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers is one another one of those too, especially with our generation. When I say shit like that, it's like I'm committing a fucking felony. People look at me like I got fucking seventeen heads. There's a couple. There's a couple Chili Pepper songs that I was like, okay, that's kind of a jam. But I've never bought in a, a Chili Peppers record. I think the only Chili Peppers records I've listened to in full. And I, they were never like intentional for me to listen to in full. Was the Blood Sex Magic record from like ninety mm-hmm. two, and then the Californication from two thousand or ninety nine, whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's just Anthony. Key- I can't get into Anthony Kiedis. Yeah, well, and, and especially with Californication, by fucking default, you listen to the whole record just because it was played on <laughs> fucking radio, and they had fucking <laughs> six singles too. So holy fuck! But uh. So that's my number four. Nice. So, so my number four um, is New Order's 1985 Low Life release. And the reason that this spoke to me the most is this was the first well, CD um, initially. This is the first New Order that I owned. I know a lot of people, it's either Substance or, you know, the, the little comp there, uh, Substance, or they end up with power corruption lies um just because of like blue monday right that's like the big one oh yeah if that was in new order they think of blue monday which power corruption and lies is definitely was my introduction to them for sure so i stumbled across this and for whatever reason it just spoke to me more i don't know why it was definitely a, a much further departure from from joy division sound um you know it just it incorporated a little bit more uh, dance elements to it. This was kind of a transitioning album. And still after this, e- even when they moved on to Technique, like way later on, Brotherhood, when they were doing a lot more with We Are Strictly a Dance Band, um, this album had a healthy do- dosage of both. Um, as far as songs, like albums that get me from song one, this is one of those albums. Love Vigilante is, is, is one of my favorite No Order songs. It's just, it's extremely poetic. Bernard Sumner is hit or miss sometimes with his lyrics. He's very like, you know, peasy, one, two, so easy. Like he loves his rhyme schemes, Not nothing against him. Um, but this is one of those that captured me from the get-go. Um, when I got to see them uh, with my buddy Kyle down, uh, we went and saw Man Center in Philadelphia after Music Complete came out. Um, the, the, album, the, the post-Peter Hook uh, New Order album release, I had this group, they didn't play Love Vigilantes. I was really hoping they were going to, but of course, uh, they just played Subculture, and that was like pretty much it off this record. But we were leaving, and as we were walking out of the uh, Performing Arts Center, uh, someone in front of me started, they sang the first set of lyrics, and then someone else sang the second set. And literally, as we're exiting this venue, we're all singing the song, like a bunch, not all of us, but you know, the fucking 25 people that were around me, everyone's singing it. And then it's like, oh, we doing the chorus? Yep, we're doing the chorus too. Like, it was just, it was fucking powerful at that point in time for me for whatever reason. Not only because it's my favorite fucking New Order song, but 
I'm singing this with a bunch of random Philadelphiaites um, leaving this venue, having seen these guys for the first time. It was just fucking, it was huge. You know, I had decent seats. Like, I wasn't sitting on the lawn. Um, but yeah, this this album for me, I front, front to back, dude, I, I can listen to every single song on here. Um, I was talking uh, with, I went down to, to Spike's record rack down at Catskill um, on Friday to pick up some stuff he had set aside for me. And we were talking about Nordy. He's like, I don't know. I don't really like when they transition to more disco dance shit. And I was like, oh, you know, that's cool. Um, I, I love, you know, the real material, especially Posty and Curtis, when they're still kind of emulating the Joy Division sound. Um, Ceremony is still a chilling, haunting fucking song. But um, I, Low Life, for whatever reason, just spoke to me. I, I love dance music, especially this era of dance music. Um, as I know, we both have certain affinities for uh, that sound. It just these guys, got, they have it. Stephen Morris, as far as the drummer is concerned, in, in terms of keeping time as a, as a fucking dance drum machine, this guy is fucking impeccable. Um, I, I don't think I've, I've seen, especially watched the live footage of him. This guy is a fucking maniac. I think wow. his drumming in general, even going back to... Uh to anything he's done honestly i think he inspired a lot more bands to do electronic drums because he was so fucking fast Mm -hmm. fast and he had the accuracy he could he could keep it that that i think he had like the staying power and what what still blows my mind to this day especially with like their their old footage from like the mid 80s which i'm sure there were some substances that they were all abusing which helped kind of you know, slip the tr- the tracks a little bit for him, but this guy would go and do this for an hour and fifteen minutes straight. And they have some of their 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 slower songs in there. But as far as just drumming in general, electronic drumming, it's crazy. And not to mention this album too. This this is another one. I remember the first time when we were sitting down and uh, we were watching Stranger Things, and that instrumental track Elijah came on. They, when I saw them, they opened with that. Um, it, talk about a haunting instrumental song. It's so creepy. It's so fucking unsettling. But it perfectly captures the dynamic that I think New Order is as a band. Um, very, I don't want to say ironically unhappy, but it's like almost just like, hey, we're happy, but we're not. I don't know. It's it's like Joy Division. Yeah, know? like that sardonic like humor yeah. too. Like yeah. yeah, dark, dark. We're yeah, I don't know. We're kind of an impending doom in a sense. Well, uh, them and them and uh, you know Depeche Mode, obviously. The cure, the, cure, yeah, the dark like wave. That the, you know, as they as they subgenreize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I in, in New Order, still to this day, still one of one of my favorite bands. Can always put them on, and this album is is no exception. So yeah, that's my that's my number four. Love it. So my number three is 1983. Um, probably one of my most listened to records. Uh, as a child, being you know eight nine years old, out in the shed working on the working on the snowmobile with the old man up there in you know upstate New York where it might as well have been somewhere in the south but uh but yeah there was just something about this record uh is Def Leppard's Pyromania uh huge on this record obviously Mutt Lang who also did I mean Mutt Lang actually appears twice on my list I mean he did Back in Black as well so uh 
I mean, he did Highway to Hell before that, too. He did Foreigners 4. Uh, he did Cars, Heartbeat City right after this. And The Cars is another band that I didn't put on my list because how can I put Panorama on there if I don't put uh, Heartbeat City? I mean, again, they fall into the Ramones, Slayer, Smiths, Motorhead category. Um but yeah, Pyromania, just a huge record for them, uh, gigantic record for them, uh, coming out in January of uh, 83, uh, last record before uh, Rick Allen loses his arm, uh, about a year later, or two years two years later, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, Photograph, just a huge song. Uh, Foolin', Too Late for Love, Rock of Ages, I mean, just, uh, I mean, Stage Fright, as my favorite uh, Def Leppard song, just a huge arena ness to them, and they took that uh, that new wave of British heavy metal influence that they had, f- that they got from, say, like Maiden, and uh, you know they were, you know, because they're still from the same like kind of school of. Uh, I mean, obviously, Priest came a little bit before them. Priest has been around since I think '69 or '70. Uh, technically, but you know they they developed in the seventies and they're part of that new wave of British British heavy metal, and Def Leppard obviously inspired by that. Uh, just a huge record uh, for them, uh, and it just it was so it's such a it, British record, but it's so Americanized because America latched onto it so well, and it's a diamond record. The, the it's sold over a hundred million copies. I mean. What can you? What can you really? Or was it ten million? I mean, a hundred million. Uh, over ten million copies is is diamond, I believe. And that is no small feat. That's huge. Oh no, it's huge. So that's your. Uh, that is your number three. Yep. So, my number three. Uh, you had already talked about this. This. Uh, this artist. Uh, later on the list, uh, I gotta I gotta include uh, Madonna's self-titled 1983 album, um, specifically because of the reason that this was one of the first handful of cassettes that I had picked up, listened to religiously in, in my my Chevy Corsica in high school. Uh, I had a tape deck, so that was literally the only thing I could do was listen to cassettes, um, and then obviously I would listen to it in the house, but. Um, as far as 80s pop music, this is her debut record. Um, it was just, to me, it was massive. Everybody in Burning Up, it, which coincidentally were also singles, um, there's just something about those, um, especially Burning Up, because it's it's a, li- it's a, more, a little bit more upbeat. Um, it's driving. I, I just, for whatever reason, it spoke to me. Again, we could talk about Madonna fucking ad nauseum, but... Um, this this is where I see I know we you're true blue and self-titled but there's just something to this um, Lucky Star I mean the singles obviously it just they're they're time pieces and what I find most interesting is that it, it really kicked off her career in a huge way not only because she scored so many so many hits with this but it was so early on the eighties, you know, this wasn't like 85, right. Which was such a huge time for the decade, the middle of the decade, so much fucking music being put out. 
she preempted this with this album and uh you know new york city born or you know new york city as far as her where she really launched her career um but also being signed on to sire like how much how many fucking bands just between the two you and i bands and artists that were signed to sire like there's something to be said for that fucking label I mean, that Seymour, that Seymour speaks Stein to Seymour Stein, 100%. Like, just, I mean, let's just, put, let's just throw that out there. That guy's a fucking thank God for Seymour Stein. Well, you, you, know, s- like, you saw that clip I sent you of Ice-T talking yeah. about us, how fucking great Seymour Stein was. Yeah, the dude, the dude recognized fucking talent. Not only radio hit talent, in this case with Madonna, um, but also fucking just killer fucking music. Um, you know, taking a look at your Ramones, talking head shit like that, like talent, pure talent. He he knew it when he saw it. He was a fucking just a, seemed to be a level headed dude. So yeah, Madonna's nineteen eighty three self titled, just kids still, and that's another one. I you know got it on cassette vinyl. I can fucking I can listen to that fucking whenever. Just throw it on and fine with it. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, like like we said, we could talk. We've talked. We have, and we would talk about Madonna all day, um, because it's that she's she's that great. And like I said, when you've sold Diamond Record and you've had platinum records from 1983 until 2008, I mean that says something. Mm -hmm. And to get to get your start in such a melting pot of an area where music was it was literally do or die i almost want to say in new york city as well because things moved so quickly there it seemed like anyway especially like late 70s early 80s there were scenes popping up clubs opening closing everything was very fucking fleeting in a sense obviously your 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 clubs like fucking cdgb's are going to be a little bit different but look at studio 54 fucking maxes you had a lot of these clubs they were open and they were closed you know like Again, do it's do or die. That's what's the beauty. That's why I think, and you, I believe you and I have talked about this. The difference between your your West Coast versus East Coast. East Coast literally was, in my opinion, um, it, it, it is do or die. You either got it or you fucking don't, or you just keep going until you get you hit the mark. And it was very very fascinating to me that that you had someone like this um, able to fucking do it. She caught the she caught the right fucking eyes and ears, man, and she fucking did it. So yeah, this this set her trajectory, set her course, and fucking love it. One hundred percent. So um, my number two is uh, I believe it's the biggest selling album of all time, and it's the biggest selling album of the eighties. It is uh, it is multi platinum in every country. Uh, it is diamond in several countries. It is three times diamond. It is triple diamond in the United States. It's that's thirty-three times platinum. That's thirty-three million records. Jesus. And it is uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. I mean, there's nine songs. There were seven singles. Seven number one singles. Jesus Christ. So if you if you want to break down uh, success and and what you want i mean there's there's nine songs seven singles the girl is mine billy jean beat it want to be starting something human nature pretty young thing thriller i mean it's it's fucking insane how big this record was what it means and how great it is um obviously with with michael on the cover and then on the inlay on the gatefold him laying with the fucking tiger 
is uh, classic and just a huge album. The biggest pop album of all time. There's no debate. So I'm really glad that you you brought up MJ, and I'm glad you brought up this record because I was very torn. I I didn't. I kind of wanted to include it in my honorable mentions or even the the, the quote unquote scrap section, but. For me, my big my big Michael Jackson record's off the wall. And I know that it was 1979, but if you look at the release history of the singles, they bled into 1980. And Rock With You is, is that's my favorite Michael Jackson song of all time. It's just such a beautifully composed record. It's, it's just, it's a great fucking dance track. It's smooth. Um, it, it's not overbearing. It's just a great fucking dance song. But... In general, for me, like this this record in particular, and it, it was it was interesting because it came at the very very tail end of the 1970s, and like I said, it, it more or less bled into the 1980s. Um, just huge, dude. Working day and night, fucking the you know off the wall is fucking huge. It check this out, dude. If you haven't listened to the song, check out Burn This Disco Out. Um, as far as a disco dance song, massive completely misses the mark i think i think that could have been easily marketed as a single but at that point it disco was more or less on the way out and it was a dirty word too yeah yeah people didn't like that shit so um but anyway not to retract from thriller uh excellent choice dude huge i mean and it the uh making i mean he obviously was the first person to do a movie short for a music video he made the music video industry what it was he launched he that pretty much prompted the the uh, one of the ideas i'm sure to, to for the big budget music videos so the thriller music video kind of set a tone for music videos to come i mean obviously there's nothing there hasn't been much like it since but at almost 14 minutes it was a, a short film obviously uh you know john landis directing you know mick garris who's big in the horror realm has went on to do a lot of things in the horror realm was a part of that he was an extra he was a zombie in that so it had zombies, it had, you know, he was like a, a wolf creature in it, and they made a home box office video of it. And, I mean, the video sales for that were 9 million units. Jesus Christ, dude. And could you, could you imagine putting, like, tallying that up at the end of the day? Especially if you're, like, a record exec. Even, that's even just the music video. Itself. It's insane, dude. And, you know, that you're talking, you know, that was o over a year and a half after Thriller had come out, the, at the album. So the last single on it was Thriller. They do the music video. So, I mean, Thriller, the album, is a, a milestone in and of itself being, you know, over Triple Diamond. And then you got a music video that sold almost, you know, is, is a nine-time platinum selling music video it's it's just unprecedented and you can't say enough uh, enough about it i mean it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy right and and i mean you touch on a really good point too especially more or less that seemed like a, a sign of of times to come right oh absolutely like we, we know the whole transition into you know music videos and, and how important that was like for just pop uh the way in which people ingested music now, there was a visual component and, you know, it got bands and record labels, not only were they focused on, okay, how are we going to promote this record? How are we going to get this out to the masses? 
you know, through advertising and all this, now there's this other additional component being factored in. And when you're selling 9 million VHS units of the video alone, which again was, was lengthy, you could put push in something like that. Um, you're not going to put a three and a half single video on a VHS tape, but, um, it was re- revolutionary. Like you said, uh, groundbreaking. So very interesting that it was released at that time. And I don't think I've ever heard of any other VHS, you know, even concerts, uh, live concert footage. Um, I don't know if there's been anything like that before, uh, as far as 9 million units are concerned. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. Not, not a video. Yeah. I don't think so. But uh, what's your uh, what's your number two? All right, so my number two, um, I'm going to touch on this briefly um, because we've talked about it before. I know uh, your disclaimer, you wanted to forego, um, you know, Ramones, Smiths, Slayer, stuff like that. Um, I did not. Uh, in hindsight, I wish I would have followed your uh, methodology. Um, some of the items you would have foregone, it would have cleared up some space, but, you know, uh, our quote-unquote scratch section um, that will shed light on some of the some of the albums that would have fallen in the top ten, um, but they coincidentally tied with some of them at that current time. Uh, but uh, but my, my number two is uh, 1984's Too Tough to Die by uh, Ramones. Obviously, it was, it was monumental for the band, breathing new light into the project. You're bringing in uh, an explosive drummer who not only had writing credits, um, but also just sped up, uh, sped up the sound that one might argue at that time was st- not stagnant, but it just gave a new outlook, breathed new life into the group. It, it was um, missing the punch that they had on those initial three records. Right. And, and even, you know, to this day, it's like still some of those, the, the, the best songs for, for you and I, or some of the stuff that we, we tend to, to hone in on. Um, like I said, you know, you, Songs like Warhog, Chasing the Night is one of my favorite tracks, just in general. It's a great pop song. Um, it, it has the kick. It has the oomph. Um, but, it, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it is a rock and roll pop song. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a somewhat of a love song. So um, you, get the, you get the grit of, you know, Mama's Boy, like I said, Warhog, the fantastic instrumental Durango 95. Like, you have these, these harder songs, but it, it, it counterbalances that with punk pop rock and roll if that's how you want to describe it joey's signature sound in there so it's it's great it's uh that that is my number two i didn't want to go talk too much about it because we've we've waxed and you know uh we've talked about that enough <laughs> yeah as we've said a million times and and if anybody that avidly uh listens to this podcast knows we've we've covered uh ramones and and almost every facet so they know that the ramones are our our, our favorite band but you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of saw the list. I, I didn't want to give, like I said, I didn't want to give all the spots to like four different bands because, like we said, I would have had just like, you know, two Ramones albums, two Slayer albums, two Motorhead albums, you know, three Smiths albums, and then that would pretty much be my 80s and then whatever. Uh, I didn't want to do that just because I feel like I do still to this day, even though. Especially the Smith stuff, I, I think maybe feels a little more '80s than other things. But I feel like the Smith, Slayer, Metallica, Motorhead, and of course the Ramones, to uh, the bands like that, to to us are timeless. So it's kind of hard to like, you know, touch on all of our tastes. It, you know, I could just throw those four or five bands in my top ten list and just let that 
be that. I decided to just move them out because that would have been too easy. It's like saying, like, you can pick any, you know, pick all your, you know, your favorite basketball, you know, highlights for forever. You know, do you, do you want to do you want to have Clyde Drexler and Charles Barkley in there? Or are you just going to say, no, nah, fuck it. I'm just going to have Michael Jordan through one through ten. Uh, not everyone is a Michael Jordan. And sometimes you just got to clear the list out for the Clyde Drexlers of the world. So uh, but anyway, so, yeah, uh, Ramones obviously uh, are in any list ever. But on, on this one, decided to give them the uh, the back burner for mine. So my number one. Is a 1985 album by a British duo, um, one of the uh, biggest albums of the 80s. Uh, has you know several had six singles out of the eight songs that were on the album. You know I'm talking uh, you know Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, and I know you're more of a hurting guy uh, as as we've discussed. But when I uh, when I think of the 80s, the two songs I think of are Shout. And everybody wants to rule the world. Like as soon as someone says '80s to me, those are the first two songs I think of. And I think because they're just so—I mean, I don't want it to sound disparaging at all, but those songs are so '80s. They're so anthematic '80s to me. I think you. I think you almost can't not think of, especially, especially shout. I don't know. There's something about. Um, when I think of like eighties comps, like remember back in the day, how there would be like the, uh, the big box sets, um, you know, number one hits of the eighties, like 81, you know, 80, 81, 82. And they would, it would be CDs, right. The, the, the four minute infomercials or whatever, where it would like promo all those, all the different box sets from the eighties. Um, for whatever reason, like, you know, you, you got your vapors turning Japanese, you got your Huey Lewis's, you got your, your flock of seagulls, um, you know, but for some reason, shout uh, for me just I oh that just is epitomizes eighties um, pop you know music if that's what, if that's how you want to categorize it um, and yes you are correct um, talking about the scrap stuff uh, tears for fears spoiler will be in there and uh, as you said it is it is the hurting that was that was such a huge song or a huge album uh, for me growing up. Uh, because it was one of the first uh, cassettes that I had when I had got my first vehicle, my shitty Chevy Corsica, um, that was played constantly, and that stuck with me. That uh, stuck with me ever since. And, um, and you know, that's an album too. I own cassette, CD, and vinyl. Some of these albums, like I've ran through it. Like I, you know, I grew up with the cassette, and then you know, once I got to CDs, and then once I uh, either uh, it, it found its way in there through lawn sailing. I don't know if anybody is familiar with that, anybody listening around the globe, but in upstate, in central New York, uh, there's actually a thing called lawn sailing. You're mm. going to go lawn sailing on a Saturday afternoon and see if you can't find a, you know, uh, a gem, a Songs from the Big Chair record amongst all the um, Eaglebert Humperdinks <laughs> of the world. The Eaglebert Humperdinks and the entire Barbara Streisand discography. The entire Barbara Streisand discography and... Uh, of course, a couple of Wayne Newton records, uh, the Grease Harry soundtrack. Conniff, Harry Conniff and the Singers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was just a, just such a huge uh, huge band for the '80s too. They they had the hair too. That they always had interesting hair. Whether it was like a, I always thought uh, Roland uh, looked like Jerry Seinfeld for some reason. 
<laughs> they definitely had the same hair at one point. Hair and almost like nose. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And Kurt, Kurt always had like a weird. He almost looked like Marco from the Lost Boys a lot of the yeah. times. Like, yeah, they were like little, like little braided hair, but then had like a little like scrunched Jerry curl in the front. It was great. So awesome. Uh, but yeah, songs from the big chair, uh, hands down, um, the most '80s '80s for sure. That is a fantastic uh, number one. And as I had already said, I wish I, I wish I would have foregone this, um, as it would have made room. But that's what the the scrap section for me is reserved for. Um, my number one is uh, is the Smiths' "Meet His Murder." Um, specifically, uh, you know, as I told you before, there was a period of time. Uh, eighth grade, ninth grade, um, traveling to Barnes and Noble, picked up three uh, three CDs, kind of changed changed the way I listen to music, um, and changed kind of a lot of my perceptions. Uh, I picked up Lesson Jake's Losing Streak, um, still to this day one of my favorite uh, albums in general. But you know, ska punk, ska if that's what you want to categorize it as, fucking fantastic. Um, second one. Ramones, Pleasant Dreams. Obviously, you and I have talked about that as well. I think it's a highly underrated album, both sonically and, and as well as just what was included on there. Uh, oh, very for sure. important time for the Ramones, even though I'm sure um, some some certain individuals or certain fans might poo-poo on it a little bit. Um, I still think it's very important, but uh, the third being Nita's Murder, and uh, that that changed my life. Uh, I know I mentioned before with uh, with New Order, uh, Low Life, Love Vigilantes, there are certain albums um, from the get-go, out of the gates, song one. Uh, Mutant's Murder is, is no exception uh, to that rule. Uh, the Headmaster Ritual is just still to this day. You, it just grabs you instantly. It's such a powerful song. Um, and, and it's really cool because it showcases the, the musicality behind the band a lot. Obviously, all of their records do. But for whatever reason, this album in particular... Um, there's just it just every there's a good balance between everybody. Um, oh the yeah. Song, the the instrumentation um, obviously primarily with Mar and then, uh, the the lyrics uh, delivered by by Morrissey. It's just it, it's it's haunting. It's it's melancholy. It just touches on all these weird emotions that you know completely encapsulate the band as a whole. And you know, as a as a young impressionable. Kid, pre or not prepubescent, but preteen, I guess you could say. Um, it impacted me. I guess pre like 15, 16 year old kid, like that just had an impact on me. It's, and it stuck with me, and I still fucking love it. So, yeah, that's that is my number one. I know you're a huge Morrissey Smith's guy. Um, but yeah, that just I couldn't not include it. And in hindsight, I wish I would have followed your lead, but here we are. That's my number one. I, uh, you, you know, I, I think with uh, the, the lure that's followed uh, Morrissey around uh, throughout the Smith's career and throughout his career, um, I think some of those other guys get lost in the shuffle. I mean, uh, you know, a- Andy is tremendously talented, as is Mike. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, the drumming and bass playing is a, a revelation on, on those four Studio Smiths albums. And Johnny Marr might be the most talented guitarist of the 80s when you think about that genre of British pop, new wave-esque, whatever you want to label it, bands. He might be the most talented guitarist of all those bands. I think, I think there's the element of talent, which you're absolutely correct, 
but sheer creativity um, from the standpoint of just how he incorporates guitar. He's not like the fucking, he's not like the fucking edge, right? Where he, the edge is just, oh, you know, I'm big into effects, you know, that's kind of my right. thing. Um, Marm actually, he could shred and he, he knew how to make interesting guitar parts that complemented a busy, a busy bass work. Um, very rep, like I would compare the bass playing almost reminiscent of a Peter Hook via Joy Division New Order. Again, the famously melodic bass player who I draw, I, I tr- attempt to draw influence from um, when I compose bass lines for songs. Um, because he's just unquestionably extremely fucking talented. So uh, again, it's it's really cool to to kind of, especially for a band that didn't last thirty five years. You know, the Smiths had a relatively quick entrance and exit. However, four um, four years uh, essentially. I mean, f- yeah, little little under five years. But it, it, it's wonderful to see that um, for the most part, Morrissey continued along still still going still putting out music um and then mar obviously with his solo stuff as well as working with various groups um it's just wonderful to see that that has carried on you know and and it it still impacts people today you know the smiths just in general they might be the the most influential band for in like indie indie rock guys of the last Mm -hmm. 20 25 years well, it's like I remember, you know, the the whole thing with like Modest Mouse and and Johnny Marr. It's it makes sense, you know. It makes sense. Uh, this I don't I don't I don't know how much you have listened to uh, Modest Mouse's discography, but they're a very weird band. Oh yeah. Um, touch on various elements from straight up pop to more kind of droney, weird like indie rock to almost borderline like bluesy folky country americana like they they, they're all over the place and i think that's somehow comforting uh for for johnny's you know his his time you know spending time with that group um i'm wondering if that was one of the things that drew him to that they weren't locked into like we are this you know it's always expanding it's ever expanding and and right that that's how at least in my opinion um his implementation of the guitar was always it was never confined to one thing absolutely that's powerful yeah, one hundred percent. So, um, but yeah, for uh, for some scraps, some some leftovers. Uh, I mean, obviously, even some of these are gigantic albums. But when you're trying to whittle it down to ten, you're trying to personalize. Uh, it's hard to, and that's why I wanted to make sure I had. Uh, I know, I know, I keep saying it, but I wanted to make sure I I made room for for plenty of different uh, things on the the charcuterie board of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of uh of 80s albums um but one of the big ones that that stuck out to me i've always loved this band but probably over the last 15 probably 15 to almost 20 years i i fell in love with this band's discography and mainly their their debut which is uh timbuk three greetings from timbuk three is uh obviously uh future so bright you gotta wear shades uh, but then there's other songs on it like Shame on You and Life is Hard that are just great. Uh, again, like almost like punk, American punk, new wave folk. Uh, they, you know, they got harmonica and songs, obviously, mostly well known for the Fu- My Future So Bright. 
uh, just a great a great band that I, I needed to to mention. Billy Idol, Rebel Yell. Uh, oh, yeah. Some some great guitar playing from Steve Stevens. Obviously, super memorable uh, key work uh, in the title track and and uh, Blue Highway, one of my favorite songs ever. Great album closer. Um, a couple others. Let's see. I had License to Ill, of course, Beasties, Purple Rain, Prince. Uh, and I pretty much wrote like anything from the Smiths, uh, Metallica, Rain and Blood. Or Rain and Blood, South of Heaven from Slayer, uh, and Ramones, Too Tough to Die, and Brain Drain. I could have just easily those, or I like those, a lot of those records that I just mentioned more than anything in my top 10, but I wanted to, as I said, forego those to try to make room as not so much gimmies so I could have more than four bands on my list. But, um, and then, uh, The Church, Starfish, a big, huge fan of that record. I love The Church. Um, and Echo and the Bunnymen, probably Ocean Rain oh, yeah. self, or self-titled I would have on my, uh, um, in my scrap spin, uh, as well. Excellent. And Talking, Dude, Head, Talking Heads remain in light as well. Uh, anything Talking Heads, honestly, it's just, yeah. it's fucking good. I'm another band that just never put out a stinker. Mm-hmm. So in, uh. In my little scraps bin, as you uh, refer to it as, um, obviously, as I've mentioned, um, Tears for Fears, The Hurting, just a, a huge, a huge album. Uh, Pale Shelter, I still think, is is just, in terms of 80s songs in general, um, if I had to make a list, not necessarily of albums, but uh, for songs that would easily, uh, without fail, every single time fall within in my top 10. It's just such... It, it's a powerful and lengthy ass song, but it's, it's, it encompasses all elements of the eighties, um, driving synth key work, uh, guitars. It's just, it's a very haunting song again, uh, using that term, but it just, it's, it's bizarre. Um, and, and I love it. Um, another one, uh, foreigners for, uh, 1981. That was huge for me. Uh, that was one of the first uh, albums I, I had inherited from my dad. And of course, you know, as we had said, being oh, TK ninety yeah. nine and, and K Rock acolytes uh, from a young age, you know, you, you basically I basically heard that on the record or on on on, uh, on the radio as well. And uh, you know, my dad loved any of the foreigner stuff, so that was a big deal to me. And, and kind of inheriting that, and it's still stuck with me. I, I love it. I think I own the majority of their discography, with maybe the exception of one or two um, albums. Uh, Foreigners four. Um, 1988's uh, Screeching Weasel, Boogada Boogada Boogada, uh, very impactful for me. Um, you know, again, eighth or ninth grade, maybe tenth grade, kind of uh, working my way into that realm. Um, Chicago's own, obviously Ben Weasel being a very polarizing asshole of a person, but I still love the guy. Um, and this record's crazy. Um, I know before it's like if you sit down and listen, to like I want to be naked or mad at the paperboy, like th- there's these different albums ding bad i mean they're, they're all good it's good pop oriented hard punk if that makes sense much much uh, grittier um and, and harder than some of the ramones material but it's still they draw a ton of influence from, from them and um unabashedly so they're not ashamed to admit that they basically um i think uh, ben Ben Weasel at one point, uh, whether it's one of the liner notes or even one of his bios or something, it's like, saw the Ramones started the band. Um, 
loves screeching weasel um talking heads speaking in tongues 1983 um a very uncomfortable bizarre fun album um that that is one of those that for me um you know, again, same sort of deal. You, you hear you hear a number of the songs on TK99, but Girlfriend is Better, um, you know, making Flippy Floppy, just these really strange art rock songs that um, the first time you, and, and then when you start listening to their discography, you start listening to them, you're right, they never really had a stinker. Maybe Naked, um, which I believe is their last, technically their last album. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But, but other than that, everything else is, is solid. Um, and again, I don't really know how to categorize them. And I think that's the way that David Byrne wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> Never for really sure. fitting any sort of one, uh, one genre, if you will. Yeah. Um, next one, free my choice by Devo had to include this in there. Um, I got this for Christmas from my mom, uh, circa freshman year. Um, I'd asked specifically for this and she went and picked it up. Thankfully, um, Gates of Steel, uh, to this day, again, one of my favorite uh, favorite songs uh, by the band Girl You Want is another one. Just really early, early, early new new wave um, elements of punk in there. It, it really shines through. The, obviously, the incorporation of the keys being much more prevalent. Um, some of the, the predecessors when you talk about punk music, but still a very interesting take on the genre. And uh, it's, I mean, yeah, with it, obviously holds up. It's a great, you know, radio song but there's a lot of gems on there um and, and i love that and the last one that i did want to include um because i thought about this after the fact and i needed to include this on here um the cures uh disintegration from 89 oh um, yep again just this is another one of those i know you and i we listen to traditionally we tend to listen to albums versus mixes um I, because i like hearing the whole thing that's why we own yep. CDs. That's why we own albums, tapes, what have you. Um, but this is one of those, again, love song, pictures of you. Like, you sit down and listen to some of this stuff from start to finish, and it's the statement behind it. Even that the, the last track, Untitled, it's, it's, a, it's a very sad, again, I don't know if we're just attracted to sad music, but um, for me, I just, I, I love this. I love the, the driving, really tone-driven bass lines and guitar work, it's 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 bright, but almost too bright, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I, and, I know exactly what you're saying with, with, with that, for sure. Yeah, and uh, that was one I wanted to include in that list, because I was thinking about it after the fact, I'm like, I have to at least mention this. There's <laughs> I, a, have, I have to. That's the thing, there's so many. Like, just sitting here and thinking about it, like, one of Dawkins... Uh, albums from the 80s whether it be breaking the chains tooth and nail under lock and key or back to the attack those four albums i probably listen to those four albums and love those four albums more than eight of the nine albums on my list but i also felt like i couldn't put one of those albums on here without like i'd feel like i was smiting the other without that because i love all four of those albums equally probably breaking the chains a little less than the rest but if I was if I was hard pressed, like that's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, okay, like I could probably cut out like 
under lock and key and breaking the chains, but I would have to have at least two docking records on my top 10 list. That's exactly why I didn't put Motorhead and put Ramones and, and put like, you know, Slayer and, and Smiths because they were just, I, it wouldn't have been as an as interesting list. And I, these are all other albums that I grew up loving and I, I felt like needed to, to showcase uh, for sure. Another, Another band, two bands I wanted to talk about, and I noticed we hadn't mentioned them, and I would be, you know, feel like we'd be morally remiss if we didn't. Uh, obviously, Depeche Mode put out some real bangers with uh, Black Celebration, Music for the Masses, uh, you know, and then you got to talk uh, a, a huge band. I think people forget how big they truly were was Duran Duran. Oh, massive. With, you know, Rio, Notorious, I mean, just huge, huge albums talk about uh you know talk about bass players and stuff uh you know anything off rio anything off notorious is is huge um i don't think you can find a busier bass player but it's great because again you have you have a radio band that's putting out stuff like this that's that's extremely dynamic um it, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up <laughs> i'm glad we at least got to mention it um in passing here as we kind of wind this down because you're right I, I, I now again. This list could easily continue to expand. The Peshmo, That's that's another one. Music for the masses. That was another early CD purchase. Um, that I, I actually I just listened to it the other day. It's 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 still fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. And it, the, I, I'm I'm really glad that you and I got to do this because um, obviously we have a lot of crossovers in terms of the stuff that we like, um, but we also we have variations for what we, we like as well. So we get a good mix, I think, of, of different elements of the, the decade. So um, I am glad that we got to do this. For sure, man. I, I appreciate you sitting down and and going through all this and getting our uh, getting our lists out there. And uh, it wasn't easy, and uh, it, it never is when you're talking about the decade and uh, the music of the decade of the 80s, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, man. Uh, appreciate the time once again. Uh, they can check out your podcast uh, on Anchor, and it streams through Anchor, um, but it, it's going to all the platforms that this podcast goes to. So you can uh, scope that whenever they drop new episodes. They have a new episode out right now. I implore you all to listen to it because it is fucking hilarious, if not for the sound effects alone. Um and uh yeah well, you can find us uh on instagram and twitter at heart guide media uh this has been the season four debut with top 10 albums of the 80s with mr lewis smith and we shall be back next week with another episode and thank you for tuning in